and welcome to None of My Business. I'm Michael Jacket. This is a business podcast, but mainly it's about people and their business. It's driven by my own curiosity and passion for learning from every conversation. Rachel Powell, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you. So, um, Rachel, the, the, the interesting thing I think that I recognise in your career, which is something I wanted to dig into on this and get a bit about your experiences and your personal views around, um, you know, the consumer product world. You know, I, I, again, I, I, you know, I say this to all my my um, guests, but, you know, I, I, I try not to know too much or look too much in depth in what you've done and experienced because I like to hear it firsthand from you. But mm-hmm. I obviously could see that you've done a lot around consumer product and, and um, FMCG um, from a marketing perspective. Um, and, um, you know, and those brands are, you know, major household global kind of brands, which is, you know, often there's interest in that alone, you know, what it's like working inside those environments. So do you want to just give me a bit of a rundown or just a few details about what your current role is um, and, and what, you know, and what you're doing there and, you know, what, what the day to day looks like for you? Yeah, sure. So my current role is head of consumer and market insights at Google for Australia and New Zealand. Um, What I get to do, I mean, that sounds like a fancy title, but what I get to do every day, um, is basically spend time understanding people. And that's that's kind of why I do what I do and why I've been on this career path, which is people are just so complex and contradictory mm-hmm. and their head thinks one thing, the heart feels another and the hands do a third. And you're yeah. trying to kind of match all those bits together. Um, and that's what I like to do, understand people, tell their stories internally to basically drive change within business, to guide strategic choices, um, whether that's internal choices or kind of external comms choices, um, how do we keep those incredibly interesting people at the heart of it? Um, and whether that's kind of on the B2C side or even on the B2B side, because I'm sure as marketers, we like to think we're far more rational than the average consumer, but uh, mm. turns out that's not necessarily the case. Um, so I'm not- oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no. So I think, you know, just interesting around that storytelling the more I do within sales and marketing, really, you know, this theme of storytelling is just, I mean, chumping out to me a lot at the moment, you know, through all different areas. Um, And so maybe, you know, maybe you can sort of just talk about what that looks like for you, you know, within Google and within the the type of work that you do and insights, you know, how, how important I suppose is that storytelling element and who, who do you find do you find that you you're sort of siding with trying to tell the story you know you've got your you wear your business hat but then you wear this consumer and insights hat as well you know and, and do you find yourself sort of trying to side with you know i need to tell the story of the consumer so that the business can make good decisions you know like is that something that's present for you yeah yeah absolutely i think if i take this piece by piece so how important is storytelling um hugely in the insight space because at the end of the day we're not necessarily the decision makers Mm -hmm. that might be marketing or sales we are the influencing function Mm -hmm. um and influence you need to be able to tell stories that are compelling and i think in data and insights only when i first started out i used to just tell people numbers 66 percent of people think this or 87 (laughs) percent of people think this and there's nothing compelling there's nothing that really resonates with people so i think an insight and I'll, I'll tell you one of my favourite insights or examples. Um, the insight was basically 66% of Aussie mums 
um, are too tired, both physically and mentally, to be the type of mums they want to be. It's a standard mm. survey, done some call that went next to it. Yeah. And that was how the research got initially presented, 66%. Um, the way we then took that and, and talked about that internally within the organisation was not 66%. It was, I want to be Mary Poppins, but I feel like the Grinch. Yeah. Um, and it's such an interesting, different way of talking about it. And it's something that someone not in insights can start to repeat and retell the story. Yeah. And that consumer insight then becomes truth and, and kind of widely shared and, and forms or starts to form the basis of our decision making. So mm -hmm. in insights, storytelling is, is huge and we're not necessarily taught that way. We're taught data mm -hmm. and methodology and questionnaires. Yeah. Um, so very, very important. Having said that, I think the balance between consumer and commercial is also very interesting because mm. a lot of people will come back with, well, this is the insight or this is the data point. But if I, if I can't turn that into a commercial reality, that's, yeah. it's not going to help me do my job or help the business grow. Way. And I, yeah. yeah, I often tell the insights person, like, go and make friends with finance. The best mm. thing you can do is spend a ton of time with finance, understanding and learning P&Ls and profit and sales choices because, you know, if you get spend time with those other functions and can speak their language, you'll be better at insights because you won't just be kind of sharing random insights to actually yeah. helping make choices. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I make it a mission of mine anyway to make friends with the people in finance because they ultimately <laughs> hold the keys to, <laughs> to a lot of the things yeah. that you're trying to... <laughs> um, so... Okay, so I think there's, there's a lot that we'll dig into around Google and your insights role, but um, to sort of contextualize that, do you want to give us a bit of a run through of some of the sort of major milestones and companies within your career that sort of got you to this? And, and also, I'd be interested to sort of talk about what, what sort of how you got into marketing as a choice, you know, or as, a, as an industry as well a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So um, my favourite course at uni was consumer behaviour. I don't know if you've ever sat in a in a course and suddenly been like, wow, my mind just exploded. But that was yeah. consumer behaviour for me. I was like, people are so interesting and you can actually kind of shift their perceptions in how they think. Yeah. Um, whereas kind of ironically, I hated market research at university. It was all R squared variables and questionnaires and correlations and no, no heart at all. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I applied, I applied for like everything, finishing university, and and I applied at PNG actually for a marketing role. Mm. And I remember um, sitting in the interview, and and the head of insights was interviewing me, and he's like, "Why marketing and not insights?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, don't take this the wrong way. <laughs> I'm not that interested in like just data and numbers and questionnaires. I'm more interested in like people and how they think and creating yeah. things that speak to them." And he was like, "Oh." I think you've got, I think you've got entirely the wrong impression. And, you know, he talked a lot about being the voice of the customer and customer centricity and how being able to kind of share consumers perspectives and stories should actually set strategic direction for the company. And, you know, FMCG is built on marketing and insights. That's, yeah. that's the foundation. That's the engine. Um, and that's certainly, I think the craft that you learn growing up in, in FMCG. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that, I, and I wonder how, you know, like that that sort of rule of thumb or that, you know, that FMCG is built on marketing and insights. I just wonder, sometimes I wonder, living in the industry for a while and coming at it from different angles, just how much that actually resonates on a day-to-day -day level, you know, like it's, you know, sometimes it's very easy for things to get 
for, for you to, for people to get so obsessed and consumed in what they do that they kind of lose sight of that bigger picture, you know, and so they tend to not include some of these fundamentals into what they're doing around decision making and stuff and and it's ultimately at the detriment of that strategy or that decision. You know, like, I don't know if you've got any thoughts around that. Yeah, look, I, there's plenty of examples, I think, where the choice, if we'd been consumer first, may have been different mm. from if it had been business first. I do, I do think in FMCG, potentially more than in some of the other industries, it's a little bit easier because kind of marketing and insights and how that's used throughout the business is built in. Like it's yep. been there for a very long time. Whether in a place like Google, it's traditionally more engineering and product-led. Like mm. that's the beauty of And kind of knowing the product and knowing the user and bringing them together is the approach versus I think in FMCG and where it's what does a consumer want? Let's go and build for that. So it's an interesting yeah. nuance between the two. But look, yes, there's certainly examples of products being produced and pricing choices being made and distribution that maybe didn't align to the consumer. Um, mm. Particularly when you've got things like customers that you need to work with and um, global stakeholders who are uh, designing products maybe for the US market that don't necessarily fit for the AU market. So yeah, yeah. there's always some questions there. But I think at, at a place like a PNG, that kind of some of those basic frameworks, who, what, how, voice of customer, that stuff is is there and has been there for a very long time. And it was mm. a great place to grow up and learn that, yeah. that marketing craft, I think. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no better, you know, often it's such a gift to learn, learn that stuff at a big agency or sorry, a big company, you know, because it is so built into just the day to day, you know, and then be able to take that away to smaller businesses or, you know, other, other work that you do. So you went from P and G and then you went to Nielsen. Yes, yeah, so I went to Nielsen after P and D. I adore P and D, but it is a very P and D way of doing things. Like, kind of same way of approaching it, same way of, of kind of going about different methodologies. And I thought rather than just moving to maybe another FMCG, um, I wanted to go agency side for a couple of reasons. One, to get kind of a breadth of methodologies and understanding, mm-hmm. um, and the other one was to just work with a breadth of clients to understand. Well, how are they kind of thinking about insights and marketing? How are they taking insights and embedding it throughout the business? How are they using that to kind of change brands or shift brand growth um, in kind of many different ways? Um, So I was looking for kind of breadth versus depth, I think, in terms of of moving to Nielsen. It was was really interesting working there because you're working with methodology guys and you're kind of sitting there saying, well, I know the methodology does this, but can it do this or can it do mm. that? And they're kind of thinking, what? Yeah. Um, but it's nice to be able to bring kind of almost the voice of the client into the agency and saying, well, that's that doesn't quite answer my business question. So how do we how do we mm. smash different methods together or tweak them slightly to get it to get it kind of the outcome we're looking for? So mm. a very different different lens and a different experience, which is what I what I was looking for coming out of P and G. What do you think the agencies miss from the from the you know, from what they think their customers being the PNGs of the world, you know, and I assume Nielsen probably worked with PNGs. Um, yeah. yeah. So what, um, you know, what do the agencies miss around, 
and and not and it's not like they miss all the time but um just that difference in thinking you know like can you give any specific examples of what you were like the experiences you were coming out of png going this as a brand side this is what i wanted but you're sort of talking about at, at nielsen needing to apply these methodologies and this is how this is what outcome this drives you know is there any sort of specific examples you can think about that come to mind yeah I'll give you my favorite example. It's actually not an FMCG example. We were working with um, a particularly industry, industry body mm -hmm. um, and they were looking at the farm gate pricing of a particular meat. And right? so how do I predict and forecast changes in farm gate pricing for meat? Mm. <laughs> that was the business outcome we needed. Yeah. Methodology wise, there's no way of doing that. There's mm. no model that does that. But if you kind of look at um, price and promotion modeling and market mix modeling and you smash them together mm. you can actually predict using things like wheat pricing and mm. <laughs> the number of particular animals you have in your farm um, yeah. you can actually model and predict it so it was working together to say okay if we start with a business outcome yeah. instead of the methodology and work backwards yeah. versus kind of starting from a purist methodology point of view I think Sometimes in insights, 90% there, 80% there, and then make the decision is maybe good enough versus yeah. it needing to be 100% perfect data. And yeah. certainly within agency side, I think the, the standard, and, and rightly so, is kind of perfect methodology. Mm. Um, but sometimes on the client side, it's, you know what, kind of good enough, and then I'm going to use my experiences to kind of make that decision on top of the data that I am able to get quickly is, yeah, yeah. is maybe some of the tension. And I think the other one is just implementation. So on agency side, you're very focused on the right methodology and the results, mm. but on client side, well, how do I actually take this and make this work yeah. with a, you know, a range of different functions, not just marketing, but whether it's sales or supply chain, or you, you know, you're going into a factory and saying, well, actually now I need to completely reconfigure the shape of the bottle mm. based on the research and saying, well, it, we can't do that because it costs ten million dollars. Yeah, so it's yeah. some of that commercial house and implications of what you're recommending that that's very difficult to do agency side, and it's only mm. when you're embedded in the business that you're kind of able to to apply that more commercial lens to whatever it is you're recommending. Yeah, well, I suppose they're more. Um, you know, you've got a bit of a rifle focus in the agency, and and your focus is to get the data and the research of your component, which is sorry, which is only a component of what the brands are dealing with. So you've got to get that perfect. And so, you know, I suppose there's that tendency to go, you know, we're going to take longer and make sure that the methodology works and make sure that it's rock solid. But at the end of the day, like we said at the start, like that's just one piece of the puzzle of this story that you've got to tell as a brand and you've got to feed everything else in. So sometimes it's quicker rather than, you know, longer and perfect is, is sometimes better, I suppose. Um, so what was after what came, when you, how long were you at Nielsen for? So I was at Nielsen for just under six years, although I did have um, some mat leave there. I had my two beautiful babies during that time. Um, right. And so I did a, a couple of different roles and they were wonderful during that time. Um, yeah. And then coming out of that, um, I, I was looking for kind of the next learning opportunity and a great opportunity arose at Jellic, um, which is a, a global skincare company, but their global team is in Australia. Mm. Um, and it, it's hard to get global roles in this market. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I jumped at the chance at, at being able to do kind of a, a head of global insights role um, without necessarily needing to move overseas um, at that particular time. 
and that's that's a much smaller company as well. So it's it's moving from you know huge companies in Nielsen and, and P and G into basically a small to medium business. We had the and the factory was still down in South Australia, and you know we were a team of maybe like 15, 20 people. <laughs> that was the entire global cross functional team. Yeah. Um, which is great. You wear so many hats. I started out um, leading insights, and by the end of it, I was also um, heading up the, the creative, internal creative team. I've never managed creatives before. I think they, they looked at me like, what on earth are you doing managing us? <laughs> um, but it was, it was incredible like to be able to kind of work with them and learn that space and be able to bring some consumer insights and stories to kind of what they were doing creatively. It was really great. Um, mm. but yeah, many, that's many different challenges. It was actually a business turnaround as well. Mm. Um, and the CMO, Andrea Martins, was was fabulous. It was my first kind of really big business turnaround, multiple markets. Um, mm. China was like basically our, our biggest market. So yeah. um, completely different culture and group of consumers to work with. So mm. I think just another learning experience. I think when you're young, maybe in your early 20s, and certainly I was, it was more about how do I go up yeah. as quickly as possible. And then it became much more about breadth and interesting experiences and what can I learn and how can I grow and stretch and mm. um, certainly I think kind of what I've looked for in each um, progressive company or role that I've moved into. Did you seek out the changes or would they sort of you know did they kind of stumble along or you know did you make it like you've you've sort of gone from brand to agency back to brand and then back to well to now Google but have you did you seek out those changes at those times or were they just circumstantial or, you know, you know? A bit of both. I think um, um, a wise person once told me, you know, you kind of know when you're ready to move on. It's usually when you've kind of delivered about 85% of what you need to. Yeah. And the last 15% is probably like something that's going to take a long time to deliver and isn't the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Um, but I certainly felt for each of my roles, I got into a place where I'd, I'd learned tons of what I needed to learn. I'd given um, almost as much as I needed to give and I was starting to think about the new opportunities. But certainly in looking for those new opportunities, it was usually a case of actually sitting through and being like, okay, well, what am I looking for? Mm. And then applying for a few different things and there is a little bit of luck and seeing what falls out in the wash and what's available at those times or mm. different people moving to different places and then picking up the phone and giving you a call at a time when you're thinking, oh, maybe I, I would be open to that versus... Actually, now I've just started in a great new position, and I'm I'm not looking for anything. So yeah, yeah uh, a little a little bit of both. But I think you know whenever whether you're getting a recall like a, a call from someone to offer you a job, or whether you're starting to look proactively, spending that time up front to be like, okay, what is the criteria for whatever my next step is? Mm. Um, it's really important to think through. I actually write it in an Excel sheet. Yeah. and kind of almost score opportunities against it because it's very easy to get flattered or, or head down a different a different path totally. than maybe the one that you want. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also worth doing something like that. I don't do that, but I probably should. But in, in order to reflect on the things that you've learned over the years that you are almost like, I don't want to do that again. You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to go there. I, I yeah, I mean, as I sort of just literally think about that now, I'm like, oh, I ended up in that situation again. And, and I probably couldn't have seen it. You know, I could never have saw it coming um, because it was things that happened during my, that, you know, the journey in that actual role. But yeah, it's like, 
like being really strategic about how you set out your decision making and the learning and taking the learnings that you've had rather than just the feelings you know being able to write them down i suppose would really help um so it's so you've spent that time at Jurlik. then then your next move was from Jurlik to google yes okay yes it was and what is that i mean what does that look that decision is that for you is it going back to how do you classify Google? I mean, what a behemoth, but do you sort of see that being more like agency or are you sort of more thinking it's more like product? Or what is it? How do you categorize that? <laughs> it's a good question. It wears, it wears many hats. I think um, what drove my decision to, to take up the opportunity at Google was a couple of things. Firstly, my own personal knowledge in kind of the digital space so things like digital platforms digital transformation mm -hmm. um like really deep knowledge of things like machine learning and even search ads and how they work and operate um mm -hmm. was very minimal yeah. like i'd done some training courses but i didn't have that kind of in-depth knowledge and and i thought that would be a really interesting place to learn mm -hmm. um the original role at Google was actually um, head of B2B insights. Um, now I span both, but it was originally just B2B. Um, and I had never done B2B before either. Yeah. Um, so that was a huge, interesting opportunity. And then the third piece was I spent a lot of time, um, I think, chatting with people who worked at Google to understand the culture. Mm. And a few people would say to me, actually, it's a lot like P&G minus the process. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so it's, it's very much a culture of, yes, challenge the status quo. If you come up with a new idea or a thought or a, or a question, the knee jerk isn't, oh, no, the knee jerk is, that's super interesting. How can we make that happen? Yeah. Um, but there are a couple of differences. So, for example, as I said before, it's product has traditionally kind of been the engine versus insights and marketing. So it's, it is a slightly different way of being able to influence. Mm -hmm. um, and also it's, I think, the process at PNG, if, I mean, if anyone who's worked there is is excellent. Like, if you want to do something, these are the people I need to influence. Here's the race in. Here's the right. uh, the criteria for success. Yeah. Um, whether at Google, it's far more kind of decision making by democracy. So, mm. am I getting the right people involved? How do they build on those ideas? Um, yeah. So there are some differences there, but um, the culture is really, really great. Like, I I adore working there. The people I work with in the marketing function. Um, so that plus the B2B and kind of digital knowledge opportunity was, um, was kind of what drove me to taking up that particular, um, mm. there's, um, I hear, I heard someone say once, maybe it was a, maybe it was the CEO of Google, but the, um, that idea that, you know, there's a failure rate, expected failure rate of 40% of any project, you know, like, like of any new initiatives, you know, which is, which forces, um, you know, trial and error, which forces people to shoot beyond what they think you're all capable of or the team's capable of. Do you see that play like that, as you were sort of saying that, that sort of started to ring true, you know, like there is an expectation that, well, sorry, when you bring a new idea to the table, you know, it's, a, it's really, it's, in, it's engaged with and it's, and it's considered. But are there any like, like physical or, or things that happen every day that push people to work on things that seem like too big ideas? Um, 
I, there's nothing that's like a mandatory thing where it's like go and spend 20 minutes a day thinking about new ideas. It's actually more just in a way that those conversations are supported at every level. So it's very hard to, to it's very kind of intangible. I mean, there's, there's yeah. some things that are tangible. So, for example, you can do or almost every employee has a chance to do like a 20% project, which is go and find an area of passion or innovation will support you giving 20% of your time to it. So there's lots of great great initiatives like that. Um, but it really is just more around the culture of, you know, it's a very flat structure. Even the most junior people can go and speak to someone very senior and be like, actually, I think there's a better way of doing this. Mm. Um, so a lot of those kind of levels and barriers. And, you know, we often talk about having one up conversation, skip level conversations and, and making sure we're available for all of those. Um, but it really is just a, around creating a culture of all well, these are our values and how do we live and breathe them and setting that example of the leadership team in terms of, you know, how do we fail quickly um, but in a way that's really supportive and that enables us to learn. So we, we do things like post-mortems on all the projects, which is really transparent, like, okay, what could we have done better and, and what can we learn from this and how can we build it better next time and and those types of things which, which do make the difference. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I love a I love a chat about culture because I think <laughs> I've experienced a few bad ones, <laughs> but but um, yeah, I think everyone has once they've been in in different companies. <laughs> um, so it always intrigues me, like what are those dynamics around leadership, and you know that 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 lead to a good culture. You know, like what like I don't know, like how how do people need to operate and behave? And, you know, I think you've sort of mentioned that you've talked about them. I think it's, you know, openness to dissecting the way that people are working and trying to strip ego out of those conversations as much as possible. And, you know, no one protecting their their stake in something, you know. I, I think that, that transparency in, in, in hierarchy, I suppose, is, is a really big one. Um, yeah. Um, I... it's tricky it's tricky to like I, I one of my questions as part of the marketing academy kind of group this year has been to ask a number of mentors like how do you build a culture mm. how do you do that um and you know some of it's just basic stuff like are you clear on what the culture is that you want it to be are you clear on the behaviors that you're going to recognize and reward and are you measured against them and are they part of your performance review and and then a lot of it is just leading by example and even to the point of, okay, are we as a leadership team calling each other when we're seeing each other demonstrate behaviours that may not be in the right space and mm. um, setting expectations for what that looks like? You know, we often talk about at Google, it's being googly. <laughs> at P&G, it was more collaborate internally, compete externally. So those types of things that really stick in your head and, and they're kind of talked about and they're like really common language and rhetoric and they're part of everything you do. Um, yeah. But it takes it, you know, it takes time to transform and build cultures. Mm. And also um, in big organisations, with a lot of people coming and going, you know, the, so the people that are coming in, they have to be able to pick up quickly what that new cultural expectation is, you know. And so they, you know, so it, it, it people it has to be so authentic because if it's not being seen by people coming into the business, then they'll just go, oh yeah, that's something that people talk about. They don't actually do. Yeah, and then there's no cult. Then the culture is out the window. Yeah, so obviously, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I was going to say, it's a, it's a great point. I Interestingly, both P&G and Google have within their kind of recruitment criteria and, and ha what you look for in interviews, like a series of questions and criteria that specifically get at 
like the how. So not so much what you believe, but how you went about and delivered it. And there are specific behaviours um, that are looking for and that need to be demonstrated to, to make sure that that cultural fit is going to be there. Yeah. Um, whereas at, you know, some of the other companies I've worked at that hasn't been part of the recruitment or interview process and the cultures maybe aren't as strong mm. for a number of reasons. But that is an interesting one in terms of how you hire people and how you bring in people into their business and into the team as well. It's almost like diversity of experiences and thinking, but some potentially common hows and, and values that kind of underpin that. Mm. Have you had a lot of experience with hiring people and building teams like directly yourself? Yes, I, I've had the pleasure at Google of being, or undertaking interviewer training and being um, one of the people that does the interviews and, and building out teams. Interestingly, even at PNG, um, junior people get involved in interviewing. So when we take interns in, um, yeah. to get accepted in that space as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, so it's something I've enjoyed being involved in um, in the whole time and and thinking about one of the things that I got taught early on is that is that balance of you want diversity of thinking in the team. Like you mm. want different strengths and you need to, to balance that out. Um, but having kind of common cultural understanding and values is, is also something to kind of look for and, and be conscious mm. of as well. So it's an interesting balance between, between yeah, that, that is interesting. As you said that, I kind of was reminded of the, um, oh, what's his name? David Attenborough's latest, you know, like environmental documentary. And he talks about the solution to this problem that we've all got on our hands is biodiversity, you know, which is, you know, like it's such a, it's so simple. It's like the more diversity you have, like nature is filled with that already. So, you know, take that learning, pull it into what we build as humans and have more diversity, you know, people bring different experiences. You know, like it's just, it's a no brainer. But I didn't actually, I, and I was like, and I've always, and I walked away from watching that documentary just going, oh yeah, that's such a no brainer. That's what we've, that's the goal. So that's the measure. That's what we've got to point to. And that's what we've got to try and achieve. Um, but in doing that, there's obviously a lot of management around culture fits, you know, because not everyone comes from the same culture and some people are going to come from really bad ones, mm. some are going to come from really good ones. How does that work when they're combined? You know, and these, these places like Google, I assume, which you can comment on is they're like, a, they're a melting pot of lots and lots of people with lots and lots of different experiences, you know, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. It's it's um there is such a celebration of diversity and inclusion at Google. Like the amount of thoughtfulness that goes into ensuring that and programs to support that is second to none from what I've seen. And it it does make such a difference. Like if we all think the same way, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna end up with just the same outcome. But if if you've got people to challenge you and bring those different experiences and it comes from different business experience, but also just life experiences mm. and lens points. Um, it's such, it's so additive. Mm. Um, what can you just tell me before we wrap up? Cause I know I've taken a bit of time, but can we talk a little bit about the marketing Academy and, and your introductory into that and what your experience was coming through that? Yes. I've, I've adored the marketing Academy. I didn't really know what it was to be honest. Um, and then a few people mentioned it to me as a, as a kind of business leadership course. Mm. Um, but it's, it's hugely more than that. Yeah. I think it's been, it's been a lot about um, personal leadership that's impacted me both at work but also in, in life um, yeah. because a lot of it is around 
how do you be your real authentic self? Um, how do you bring a, a, a style and a way of, of working with others or interacting with others, you know, family or work that um, I think brings people in and it, it's everything from kind of how do you listen well and how do you have more of a pull style than a push style and mm. um, it's been incredible. And, and the willingness of people to kind of be involved in it. So I've had some incredible mentoring sessions with, very senior people who are very busy mm. that have sat down and chat with me really openly and transparently um, through to people like Sherilyn and, and Penny from The Living Leader who who share their stories, the good and the bad, um, to kind of bring to life some of these teachings. Mm. Um, and the cohort that I, that I was lucky enough to go through who are just an amazing group of people, mm. um, it's been wonderful. Like I'll, I'll give an example of we, we had boot camp last week um, and one of the topics we, topics we were talking about was leadership styles in a crisis and and what are some of the lessons learned or things you want to highlight. And one of the really interesting ones that, that I took away was the idea of push-pull leadership. Um, so push leadership is more around, okay, I'm, I'm going to make the decisions, I'm going to tell people what's happening and we're going to move. Pull is far more, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to question, I'm going to gain input, I'm going to take people on the journey. Um, and, and that's probably where you want to play more of. There's no kind of 100% one or the other, um, but majority, kind of more be in pool, you bring people on the journey, far more engaged workforce. Yeah. Um, but in the pandemic, you end up being, in, in many instances, more pushed because you're making tough decisions quickly. Um, and the conversation was around, well, if you're in a in kind of a, a push space, how do you empower your employees and how do you give them some of that power back? So things like, well, if... Um, take a hypothetical scenario, your budget got cut, but you still need to deliver really strong targets. And, and that was kind of the mandate. And, nope, this is what we're doing. You know, how do you kind of change that conversation to get your team motivated? So it could be things like, if we knew we could do this, mm. how would we go about it? Mm. Yeah. Or if, if we took that assumption, what of that assumption? We said, okay, if we took away that assumption, then, then how could we do it? Or if you were me, what would you do? Or if I wasn't here, how mm. would you tackle it? Mm. And, and kind of giving that power back um, despite the fact that in, in times of crisis you skew more push. Lessons like that have been so helpful in terms of just practical things to kind of take away and, and bring to work each and every day. So I found it just an incredible experience, um, one mm. I would very highly recommend yeah well it's um it's something when i contacted you i mentioned that a friend of mine jules lund he'd done it and i when he told me he was doing it, i was like oh you bastard like i've been looking at that i've been i'd sort of had my eye on that for a couple of years going one day i'll kind of get to that but i've been a bit of a marketing company fanboy just from a distance for a while <laughs> just <laughs> loving the kind of content and the people and sort of seeing the impact that it's having on that kind of thing you know like it's it's a marketing, it's a course for people and humans that are going to go out there and impact companies and make them better companies because at the end of the day, we're, they're full of humans. And, you know, if we can connect better with humans as leaders, then um, we're going to do a better job. But yeah, I just think it's such a, an amazing thing, you know, that exists um, to, to purely give, like inject better thinking and better people inside these organizations is what is kind of what I assume that is going on in there. But um, yeah, it's a fascinating. <laughs> um, Rachel, thank you so much for your uh, time today. It's been it's fascinating. And I loved hearing about the insights work that you've done and the, and the, um, the career you've gone on and had in there. 
Um, and I look forward to following along and perhaps talking down the track sometime. It will be a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel.